pray. Our Father in heaven, I am so tired. And your word tells us, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And our time together today, Lord, is not about me. It is about you. And Lord, we see so dimly. Even at best, we see so dimly. So we pray that by the power of your Spirit today, that we would behold the glory of Christ. Amen. So why is he so tired? Yeah, I went to a, a conference this week down in Southern California. Some of you guys know that. I attended the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's church uh, and seminary. Uh, it was a week of solid sound instruction, a week that was truly a blessing to me. I got less than 16 hours of sleep over the course of three days and listened to over 38 hours of sermons. And you might think, man, are you sure you want to preach when you're that tired? I just listened to 38 hours of sermons. You think I don't have something to say? Come on, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I have no doubt that it will be a blessing to all of you as well, as the things that I have learned will naturally make their way into the things that I pass on to you through my preaching, through my life, through my interactions. And the flight down was, uh, was pretty amazing. Um, it, was a, it was a great flight. Um, I found myself literally surrounded by other pastors and lay leaders who were flying down to attend the conference as well. I was surrounded by four guys. Somebody said shepherds, and everybody turns around like, you say shepherds? And we're all going. But, but right in the middle of the flight, we hit some pretty heavy turbulence. Some pretty heavy, heavy turbulence. It's kind of turbulence that kind of causes you to lose your breath. And, you know, the, the, the seatbelt light immediately comes on. You know, the captain's like, whoa, you know, goes right for it, you know. And I know that turbulence is, is one of those things that gets people nervous. I can hear people gasping. Uh, I remember being once uh, on a flight, you know, when I'm in turbulence, it brings me back to this time when I was on a flight between Las Vegas and Phoenix, and we went through a, a thunderstorm in the middle of the summer, and the turbulence got so bad that my friend's uncle, who was on the plane with us, actually threw up. And it was just, it was one of those things that you don't forget. So I understand, you know, turbulence freaks some people out, but personally, turbulence has never bothered me. And as I listened to the people gasping as we hit these pockets of, of heavy turbulence for a good 20 minutes or so, uh, it caused me to wonder why I have never really gotten a whole lot of anxiety about it. Even in severe turbulence, I, I really don't get a sense of panic. And the only answers that I could come up with are, first of all, uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Uh, do I believe that fully? My flesh does not. My spirit does. You know, the more I walk with Christ and behold glimpses of his majestic glory, the more I do truly believe that. 
But secondly, you know, I know that, you know, put me in the cockpit, I can't do any better. So, uh, you know, if I'm the one flying the plane, there's, you know, we're really going down. So, you know, there's nothing that I can do about it if we have turbulence. So since I can't fly the plane, I feel like there's no point in getting anxious about it. And isn't that exactly how so much of the Christian life is? Think about it. We spend so much time and so much energy worrying about things that we can't control. Who's guilty of worrying about things that you cannot control? Yeah, me too. But we don't need to because the sovereign God of the universe is the only one who's qualified to fly the proverbial plane. And that isn't to say that we should not put forth some sort of effort or strive, but when things are out of our control, we don't need to worry because God is sovereign over it all. So, so why do we worry? Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Easier for some of us than for others. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that if you are a child of God, having placed saving faith in Christ as evidenced by the fruit in your life, as evidenced by your willingness to put to death the deeds of the flesh and your willingness to deny yourself, your willingness to take up your cross and to follow Jesus in obedience. If you are a child of God, the Spirit of God has accomplished and is accomplishing a work in you that you could never, ever do on your own. The good news, if you are a child of God, is that God is sovereign. He is in control. The bad news is the flip side. If you have not put saving faith in Christ, if you are not a child of God, God is sovereign. He is in control. This is the theme that we started to look at last week in Zechariah chapter 4. Today we're going to be going through Zechariah chapter 5. You're going to want to have your Bibles open for this one because we're, going to, we're not going to have a PowerPoint and we're going to be all over the place. We looked at the vision last week that God had given to Zechariah to pass along to Zerubbabel, the governor at the time of Judah. The message was understood to underscore the reality that we found right at the heart of that passage, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And as we continue today with the fifth chapter of Zechariah, we'll see this theme expanded and expounded upon. We'll see that God elaborates on the power of His Spirit to work in the lives of His people. As we enter into the fifth chapter, we're going to look at the sixth and seventh visions that were given to Zechariah, numbers six and seven. Now, throughout the Bible, you may know that the number six is very significant. It represents humanity's sinfulness. It represents humanity's complete and utter fallenness. But the number seven also has great significance. 
The number seven represents God's complete perfection. So you'll want to keep the significance of these two numbers in mind as we go through the sixth and seventh visions that were given to Zechariah. If you have your Bibles open to Zechariah chapter 5, let's start with verses 1 to 4. We read, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. The repetition that we have seen throughout the book of Zechariah should be pretty evident by now. Before almost every vision, sometimes twice in a vision, but almost always at the beginning of a vision, he says this. He says, I lifted my eyes and saw. I lifted my eyes and saw. And and what does he see this time? He sees a flying scroll. Now what's a scroll? A scroll is a piece of parchment more commonly It was a piece of leather, a large piece of hide wrapped around two sticks and you would put a text on it and you would scroll on each end as you read it. And this flying scroll that Zechariah sees is considerably large. It's considerably large, 10 by 20 cubits, which roughly works out to be about 30 feet long and 15 feet in width. Now, I haven't done measurements in here, but I don't think uh, that this room is a whole lot bigger than this scroll. So you get the idea. It was big. It was, it was a big scroll. It's enormous for a scroll. There, are, there were no earthly scrolls that would have been that size. But the question is, what does it represent? And this is where it starts to get Pretty interesting, because this isn't the only time that we see those specific measurements given in Scripture. In fact, it's the measurements that match the dimensions of the holy place, which is the portion of the tabernacle which was divided from the Holy of Holies. It is not a coincidence that these measurements are exactly the same. It's a clue. It's a clue as to exactly what this is. Now, if you picture the flying scroll in the same way that you picture, you know, a a plane flying overhead with a huge banner on it, it's maybe a comparable image. Take away the plane. It's up there for everybody to see. And the interpreting angel here tells Zechariah what this is. He says that it's the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. It's not a curse, it is the curse. It's the curse, and it's flying above the whole earth, which means that everybody is under it. Everybody is under the curse. That's the second hint as to what it represents. 
So the angel explains to Zechariah that on one side it reveals everyone who steals shall be cleaned out. And on the other side, it says that everybody who swears falsely by the name of the Lord shall be cleaned out. What does this represent? Well, where do we get the command not to steal? From the Ten Commandments. Where do we get the command not to swear falsely by God's name, not to take his name in vain? From the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you were to look at the tablets that were given to Moses of the law, Numbers 3 and 8 would be the center of each tablet. So these represent the entire law. And the purpose of this flying scroll is to demonstrate God's judgment against the sinner. This represents the law. This scroll carries on it the charges against all of humanity, everybody who's under the law. Do you see that? The scroll is the law. It's flying. It's up in the air. It's over the land. It's the curse. Why is the law a curse? Look at verse 4. It consumes everything that the sinner possesses. It infiltrates everything about them. Everything that they own. John MacArthur notes this. God made that scroll to conform to the holy place in the tabernacle in the temple because that was the form of divine measurement. And the flying scroll is simply the curse that is based on God's divine measures. So this flying scroll represents God's perfect and holy word. It is the law of God which condemns every person on the face of the planet, guilty of sin. You are under it. God is holy, and every person on the face of the planet falls short of His holy standard as revealed in His holy word. You fall short. I fall short. Every day I fall short. The whole human race falls short. Because God is the one who defines what sin is. God and God alone, God, God and God alone determines and defines sin. Sin is defined by his holy character as revealed in his holy word. It is not defined by popular opinion. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. But that's what popular opinion would have us do. It's not defined by popular opinion. It's not defined by what works best or what feels good or what feels bad. It is not defined by what we like. It's not defined by what we don't like. It is determined by God. God alone created the universe, and thus God alone has the sovereign right to define sin and to define the criteria for holy judgment and condemnation. And the criteria is breaking even one little part. One is all it takes, and it's all shattered. If you take the richest vessel on earth, the the nicest piece of pottery, the most valuable piece of pottery, and you put one little chip in it, what have you done to it? You have devalued it like you would not believe. And that's the way it works with God's word. Breaking one little part breaks the whole thing. 
The law is the word of God. And Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. So ultimately, truth is what judges and condemns all of humanity. The previous chapter told us about the the seven eyes of the Lord and how they they roam through the whole earth. It's showing us his awareness of of everything, his, his omniscience. The reality is that God sees and is completely aware of every single sin, even the small ones. The sin that we might do in the privacy of our own home. When you think that nobody's looking, God sees it. He knows about it. The sin that just remains in your heart, and maybe you just you filter it out, it doesn't completely come out, but it's in there, you want it so bad. That's sin too. He sees that too. He knows about it. The times that you have told less than the complete truth, the times that you have sworn falsely, the times that you have taken His name in vain, He sees it. He knows about it. Imagine for a moment, Garrett and I were having this conversation while I was down there. I got to spend some time with Garrett. Imagine for a moment that every inhibition or filter that you might have on what you say, on what comes out of your mouth. Imagine that filter, those inhibitions were removed so that what came out of your mouth would just be a streaming flow of your own consciousness. Let me ask you, friends, do you find that idea terrifying? I do. I I personally would be absolutely terrified because I know what's in my heart. We just say whatever, whatever we're thinking, whatever comes to mind at any given moment, no reservations. Does that scare you? Because Jesus said that the things that come from our mouths are what? They are overflow from what's in our heart. With no restraint of the tongue, the darkness of the heart would be constantly articulated. And if you are honest with yourself, this idea should make you tremble with fear because God sees the sin that's contained in the heart before the tongue has a chance to restrain it. He sees it. He knows about it. And guess what? He cares. He cares that it's there. He cares about what's in your heart. When Christians covet what what belongs to their neighbors, God sees it and he cares. When a Christian salesman tries to manipulate and take advantage of a client, God sees it and he cares. When a Christian husband's eyes wander to another woman, gazing upon a woman other than his wife, God sees it and he cares. The flying scroll represents God's complete awareness of humanity's sin and the promise of the curse, the promise of judgment as a consequence, as a wage for sin. The sixth vision reveals that God's judgment upon all sin, the big ones, the small ones, all sin, it is absolutely certain. And it reveals that every person on the face of the earth has only earned God's condemnation. 
God's wrath because we have all broken the standards that have been set by God. Being a holy, righteous, all-knowing God who judges sin means that he cannot overlook even the smallest sin. What would you think of a judge who just overlooks sin, overlooks a wrongdoing? Somebody commits a crime and he just gives them a wink and says, I got you on this one, don't worry about it. Go ahead, go do it again. What would you think of that judge? He would not be holy. He would not be righteous. Friends, we are condemned by the law. And what about those who who don't have the law? What about people who have never read, never even heard the Bible? What about the proverbial guy out in the middle of a jungle in Africa, right? What about those who have never heard what sin is or or isn't? That's a good question, and Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 2. He says, verses 12 to 15, he says, For all who have sinned without the law, there you go, people who have never read the Bible, that's what he's talking about here. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You might say, what what does that all mean? It means that God gave the law to everybody. It means that God gave every person on the face of the earth this thing called a conscience. It's not written by society, although society will certainly corrupt it and shape it. It is written by God. And the truth of the matter is that at some point or another, everyone on the face of the earth has violated their conscience. At least once. We all do it. We all get that that conflicting thought. Should I do this? Should I not do it? We see kids do it. They do something they know they're not supposed to do it. We've all done it. And that is enough to judge somebody who has never heard the word of God. Somebody who does not have access to it. It's sufficient to condemn everyone who has ever walked the face of the earth. Turn with me in your Bibles back a few books to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. We're going to look at the seventh chapter of Micah for a moment. Micah chapter 7. The seventh chapter of Micah expounds on the universal failure of all humanity to live up to God's holy and righteous standards. Micah chapter 7. Let's just start at verse 1. Listen very carefully to what it tells us. Verse 1. Woe is me. I, I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. He starts off by saying, woe is me, which is another way of saying, I am cursed. I am cursed. And he goes on to tell us why he's cursed. Look at verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all 
lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Who is they? Who is he talking about here? Who is they? Look at verse 2. It's everybody. It's all of humanity. This is you he's talking about. This is me that he's talking about. What room for negotiation or exception or exemption is there here? None. None. This is everybody. Look at verse 4. He says the best of them The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Do you see this? The very best that humanity has to offer is a briar. The most upright on the face of the earth, on their own, is a thorn hedge. We are all condemned here. Even the best, even the most upright, all of humanity stands guilty before a holy, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful judge who cannot leave even the smallest sin unpunished. We are all guilty. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Paul talks about the law. He talks about what it's there for and what it does. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 tells us this. It says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God hates sin. And if you do not understand how serious this is, how serious sin is. Look at this. Look what we see here in verse 10. Why would God call it a curse if this was not serious business? This is the sixth vision of Zechariah. It reveals, clear as day, the complete fallenness of man. The sinfulness of humanity and the judgment of humanity's sin by a perfect, holy, righteous God. But know this. When the Spirit of God reveals our sin, you're ready for the remedy. Does everything in verse in, in verses 1 to 4 of Zechariah chapter 5, does, does this universal condemnation of humanity cut you to the heart with conviction? Then you're ready to move on. You're ready to hear what comes next. If you don't think you're guilty, if you don't think that you have earned the holy wrath of God as a consequence of your sin, whether it was acted upon physically or just contained in your heart, go back. Go back and... and Go through the condemnation of man again. Because you're not ready for the remedy if you're not convicted. 
But if you see or if you hear the word of God and you're ready to acknowledge your sin, you're ready to acknowledge your guilt, and it's causing you to feel the weight of conviction upon your heart that you cannot bear, know this. The Spirit of God doesn't just reveal our sin. It also, He also reveals the remedy for our sin. He reveals our sin and He will remove our sin. Why does He reveal it? So that we will hate it. So that we will see it and so that we will hate it and that we will turn from it. So that we'll desire and long to be freed from this condemnation that we are under. And that's the point where we're ready for him to remedy our fallen condition. We're ready for him to remove our sin. And that's what we're going to see as we move into the seventh vision of Zechariah. So as we continue with this chapter, verses 5 to 11, we read, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that's going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is the iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. There is a question that all of this condemnation that we realize we're under forces us to ask. And I hope that you have already asked it in the silence of your hearts as we were going through this. The question is, what hope could we possibly have? What can we do to make restitution? And the answer is that on your own, there is absolutely nothing that you can do. You are guilty. I am guilty. All of humanity is guilty. Left to our own desires and affections, there is nothing within us at all that would ever desire to make restitution or to feel godly grief and remorse for our sin. And if you don't believe me, look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For it is God, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you are willing for God's good pleasure, why is it? It's because God is working in you to give you that will, to develop and grow that will in you. 
Left to our own desires and affections, there is nothing within us that would desire this. And if you still don't believe me, read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. I I gave you one verse. He'll give you like a hundred. The answer must come from outside of ourselves. Because everything within us is tainted, corrupted by the effects of sin. The answer, the remedy, must come from God. God must be the one to deal with our sins somehow without compromising His own perfect righteousness in doing so. And here we have to remember that the people of God, the remnant who are in Jerusalem, they had returned after 70 years of captivity to the Babylonians. And they hadn't turned to the pagan gods of the land externally. They they weren't practicing the, the religion of the land, the false religion of the land, although they had certainly had idols, developed idols in their hearts internally. But they hadn't honored God in the way that they were supposed to. The sin, even by God's own people, was great. How was God going to deal with that? The picture of what he does with their sin is a picture of how he deals with our sin today as well. Look at verse 5. The angel comes forward. This is the angel who has been interpreting these visions for Zechariah, helping him to understand these visions throughout his book. And the angel shows Zechariah a basket. And the basket is doing what? It's about to go out. The Hebrew word for basket here is apha, by the way, which was a large container, kind of like a a barrel that was used for measurement, measuring grains and things like that. The people of Israel were notorious for adjusting the apha and sinning, cheating. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but listen to what the prophet Amos had to say about the Lord's judgment of their use of the ephah. He said, Amos chapter 8, verses 4 to 7, he said, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And even after their return from Babylon, the people of God were cheating. They were sinning in the same manner, using fixed scales, fixed aphas, fixed measurements to cheat the poor. Why would they do that? For the same reason that anybody ever cheats at anything. Because of greed. Because of desire for more for the self. Better for the self. The apha in Zechariah's seventh vision, or the basket here, represents all of their sin the text tells us. Like the scroll, which was considerably larger than a regular scroll, it looks like the ephah was also larger than a 
regular APHA. They would be normally large enough for about eight gallons, but this APHA is large enough to fit a woman who is revealed to have been inside of it when the cover is removed. So either this is a bigger basket than normally, than it normally would be, or this woman is small. Either one. But what does she represent? She represents the wickedness. She represents the sin of the people. Her name is wickedness. Now here's the remedy for their situation. Look at verse 9. Two women with wings, like those of a stork, lifted up the apha between earth and heaven. And with the wind in their wings, they fly off into the distance, carrying the sin, carrying wickedness away. So Zechariah asks the most logical question. Where, where are they going with her? Where are they going with this apha, this basket? Where are they going with wickedness? The wickedness of the people. And the answer is they're, they're taking it to Shinar. Where's Shinar? It's in Babylon. The idea here is that their wickedness doesn't belong amongst God's people. It belongs nowhere else but Babylon, where it'll be placed in a shrine, a place of honor, where it'll be seen as a thing to be desired. It'll be something to be pursued, maybe, maybe even worshipped. Now, there's something that we need to understand. While, while Babylon was a literal place, it also was symbolic. It also represents something much, much bigger than just the literal place, the literal geographic location. It represents wickedness. It represents sin. It represents everything that offends God, everything that stands against God, everything that warrants His eternal condemnation, judgment, and wrath. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is identified as an ideology that stands in stark contrast to the kingdom of God. It is the exact opposite of the, value, of the kingdom of God. Babylon is also called the world in various parts of Scripture, like where it says, do not love the world. If somebody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Talking about Babylon. Babylon is synonymous with the world. Babylon represents sin and rebellion against God. But do you see God's promise here? He sees the sin of His people. He knows about the sin of His people. He's completely aware of it. And He's got to do something about it. He's going to have to remove their sin Somehow, if he's going to spare his own people from eternal judgment. So he has it delivered to Babylon. Now, does that mean that there's no penalty for that sin? That, that God is, is not going to do anything with it? Not at all. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. John is witnessing the end of the world here in a vision from God. And this is what he says, starting in, in verse 1. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, 
having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Let's stop there. Did you catch what was in verse 3? How many nations were not corrupted by Babylon? Zero. None. They were all drinking the wine. They, They all participated in what? In her sexual immorality. Go down to verse 19. Revelation chapter 18, verse 19. And look at that last line. In a single hour, she has been laid waste. Babylon, at this point, in this vision that John has, it's been burned to the ground. God's wrath has been poured out on it. The system that opposes God, the world, Babylon will feel the full force of God's unrestrained wrath unleashed upon it. Go down to verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. People ask, How can God, if he's really all-powerful, how can he allow evil? How can he allow wickedness? And the answer is because he's more patient than we are. He's patiently, patiently, patiently bringing many sons to glory. But the day will come when he will pour out and unleash His holy wrath on everything and everyone who opposes His will and His kingdom. In Zechariah's vision, God has placed wickedness, all of the wickedness of His people in this ephah. And He has slammed the lid shut He thrusts wickedness in there. He slams the lid shut. None is going to escape. And he brings it to where it belongs. The idea here is that God is the one who has sovereignly taken the initiative to take away the sin of his people. Was he under obligation to do it? Is a a perfect judge ever obligated to show mercy? No. No. God had to sovereignly choose to take the initiative. Let's look back at Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, back in the Old Testament, a few books before we got to Zechariah. That was where we saw 
the universal guilt of all of humanity, where it told us that the best and the most upright on all, in all the earth stand guilty before God. That they fall short too. But now let's look a little further down into the passage. Micah chapter 7, verse 7. He's told us about all of humanity, how all of humanity and the best, the most upright, they've all fallen short, but look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Verse 9, look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Is he innocent? No, he's guilty. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. You get the idea that he's standing in Micah's place. Go down to verse 18. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Micah says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you see that? Do you see what he's doing with their iniquities, with their sin? Do you see he will have compassion. Why? Look, look back at verse 7. I will look to the Lord. As for me, everybody else is wicked, and I am too, but I will look to the Lord. Verse 9, Micah's aware of his sin. He feels the godly grief. He is repenting. And so, God will trample their sin. God will trample their iniquities. God will trample these things underfoot even though he had every right to trample the sinner underfoot. He will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea even though he has every right to cast the sinner into the depths of the sea. Do you realize that we know more about the moon than we know about the bottom of the ocean. That's how foreign the bottom of the ocean is. That's how far away it is. We've never been there. And God says, I will cast your sin down there. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. That was where it showed us that we are all guilty under the law. Verse 10 said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Go down to verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming 
a curse for us. Do you understand this? Christ redeemed for himself a people. He purchased us. He saved us. From what? From his wrath. From the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. That's what he did on Calvary. Here we see these women with the stork wings flying between heaven and earth, which is exactly where Jesus was as he, as he was up against the cross. Feet above earth, head under heaven, and he's there bearing the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Do you understand that? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake he made him, talking about Jesus, he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? He made Jesus to be sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you feel the weight of this? God made him who knew no sin, who lived a perfect life, whose will never deviated from the will of God. Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How does God, how does a holy and righteous God justify the fallen sinner? Here it is. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we're saved. This is how we're redeemed. Friends, do you see this? So here's my advice. Do what Micah said. Do what Micah said. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord who will stand in your place. Look to the cross. Look at the Savior who took the sins of His people upon Himself and who took the full wrath of God upon Himself. Our sin has been taken away through faith in Christ. It was placed on Jesus. It was imputed to Him. That's the theological term. It was imputed or transferred to Him. God took our sin and He placed it on His own Son to save a wretch like me. To make a wretch like you and like me his treasure. Friends, please hear me. All of humanity stands under the curse of God's perfect, righteous, holy law. Galatians chapter 3.10. I want to go back to this real quick. It said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things. That's a tall task, isn't it? And you might say, well, that's not fair. That's not, that's not fair, God. It's impossible to keep track of all the, all the things your, your law says, much less do them. You want me to memorize these things and do them? And in the, and in the process of that, not break any of them? It's impossible. You're right. You're right, it's impossible. You 
cannot do it. Let's narrow it down to just one. Just one. How about that? Let's just bring it down to the greatest commandment. And forget everything else for just a moment. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus said that it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the reality is, only one person has ever done this. Out of the billions and billions of people on the face of the earth now and throughout history who have ever walked the face of the earth, nobody has ever done this for even one minute. Nobody's ever done it for one consecutive second. Nobody in all of history but one. Look at Jesus who always did the will of the Father, who never for one minute, never for one second, never for one nanosecond, failed to love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't done it for one second. There was not one second where he failed to do it. You and I cannot uphold the law. But Jesus did. Jesus did. And he became our legal, penal substitute. How does God save us then? By faith, he imputes our sin to Christ. All of it. The small ones, the big ones, the big ones. He, he casts it all upon Christ. And then he casts his own son into a sea of his own awful and terrible wrath against sin in our place. He would sooner cast his own son to the depths of the sea in our place. And Christ's perfection is imputed to us. And that's how a holy and righteous God justifies a sinner without compromising his own perfection. What does the number seven represent? It represents God's perfection. That's what is imputed to us through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Spirit of God reveals our sin and our sin is removed from us, imputed to Christ, transferred to Christ, thrown upon Christ. The Spirit then comes to dwell within us, empowering us to wage war against and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you cannot do these things without Him, without the Spirit, without the power of the Spirit within you. And so I beg you, friends, to repent, to turn from your sin. If you have never put trust in Christ, look to Him and trust in Him because there's no other way. You will be like a little army wax figurine in a furnace before His wrath. 
you must have somebody take your place. So turn from your sin. Every day, flee from it. Don't just walk away from it. Flee from whatever might be hindering you in turning to Christ and surrendering to Him. Fix your gaze on Christ. Not on Babylon. Not on the world. Fix your gaze on Christ and throw yourself completely at the mercy of Christ and be reconciled to God. There is no sin that He is incapable of forgiving. If you will come to Him and confess your sin, repent, and believe that His Son, believe that God's Son was your substitute. And friends, beg Him. Beg Him to change your affections. Beg Him to change your desires. Because listen, when your affections are changed... When your desires are changed, your mind is changed. And when your mind is changed, your actions are changed. This is just basic psychology. A change of affection will lead to a change of direction. There's an easy way to remember it. A change of affection leads to a change of direction. But God must be the one to work in you, both to will and to work for His pleasure. So I beg you to search your hearts and see, do you will for His pleasure? Beg Him to do that work within you and avail yourself to that work. This is what it means to be reconciled to God. And this is what it means to be transformed into Christ's likeness. And that is the end to which God is causing all things to work for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Christ's likeness. Do you want that? Do you want his righteousness when you stand before him? Are you hungry for his righteousness? Then come and behold the glorious splendor of God's grace for you, which is only found in the one substitute, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that your spirit would convict us. We thank you for the discomfort that that causes, for the pain that causes, for the sense of fear, maybe, that that causes. Because we know that it is your hand working in us. And so, God, as we consider this, these two visions that you gave to Zechariah, our prayer, O oh God, is that we would be in deeper awe of your majesty, of your glory, of your righteousness, of your holiness, and of your mercy, and of your love for even us. Though we have never, for one second in our lives, earned 
your mercy or love. You showed your great love for us by sending your son to be our substitute. So we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Make us a people who cast wickedness away and live only for you. Teach us, Lord, to make your Son, Jesus, our greatest treasure. Change our affections, God, that we may find more pleasure in Him than in any sin. That you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, knowing that this is your will for your people. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.